It's Illiterate! Welcome everybody, my name is Evan. My name is Taylor, I read a book. I watched a TV series. This week we're doing Star Wars. We're doing the illustrious franchise of Star Wars. Up front, this is not about the rise of Skywalker, the new Star Wars film. This is about the history of the franchise, maybe some of the literary basis of the franchise, that kind of stuff. So up front, this is no spoilers for the new movie. This is all about the tasty nibs and stuff you didn't know about the franchise. And it's not a geek fest. This is all the interesting connections, and we're not going to fan out about characters and or anything like canon that. and <laughs> you know like no, no we're not those types of like i'm a, I'm a fan of the franchise uh, taylor you you're, you're a casual fan of the yeah. franchise but i you know i've not read the comics i've not read all the novels i don't know what's can you know i've watched mostly the movies i've seen some of the tv shows i played some of the games but yeah hey <laughs> star wars yeah the history before the beginning the year 1976. Many people do not know this, but there was a book that came out called Star Wars The Adventures of Luke Skywalker. This is six months before the movie came out. So is this, a, is this like a hired novelization? It says on the cover, George Lucas. Right. We will get to who actually <laughs> did it. <laughs> uh, Once, so a new property that yes. nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> Has a novelization hit shelves months before anybody even is even heard the name Luke yes. Skywalker. It's never been uttered into the ether yet. And if you know and then saw the movie Star Wars, the descriptions of the characters are wildly different. Jabba the Hutt is more humanoid, walking on legs with a jowly face. C-3PO is bronze instead of gold. Vader has a blue lightsaber instead of a red one. Oh, okay. All kinds of stuff. The novel was released very quietly, but of course, after the movie came out, it actually reached number four on the paperback bestsellers list. I bet. I bet so, all those bookstores were just like, we got to put this crap on ourselves. <laughs> and then the movie comes out and it's just this mess. Like, it's unlike anything anyone has ever seen. You just have people grabbing them up. This yeah. trash that you couldn't get off of the shelf for six months, just been taking up your shelf store. And now people cannot get. Now you're ordering more. What kind of bizarro land books <laughs> yeah. own? <laughs> Yeah, it sold 2 million copies by August. Oh of my that year. gosh. Yeah. And of course, we know that the film was huge. It is adjusting for inflation, the second highest grossing movie right under Gone with the Wind. Golly. That oh. adjusted for inflation mm -hmm. list, that is the list, ladies and gentlemen. That yeah. is the real deal. Anything else, any other record breaking stuff you see, you see, it's all propaganda. They want to convince you that every week it's the newest, biggest thing. And if you're not going to the theater, you're missing out. No, no. The adjusted for inflation list, those are the real deal, baby. Yeah, yeah. So now that this is blowing up, the next thing that comes out literarily for Star Wars is a comics line by Roy Thomas in 77. Oh. Same year the movie comes out. Also, though, it came out before the film. Very slightly, but still is released before the film. So they have all this promotional material to support this movie before it ever hits the shelf, before mm -hmm. they know they have a hit. I wonder if they're if they are viewing the movie maybe as a disaster and they're trying to salvage it as much as possible with auxiliary material to try and just get kids interested. They are definitely viewing it as a disaster. Connecting to one of our previous episodes, this comics line is created and introduced and produced by Marvel Comics. And if you remember really? from our yeah, Stan Lee yeah, yeah. episode, we were saying this, the 70s, the late 70s, was the dark era of Marvel Comics, one of their slumps, and this is what brought them out of that. Wow, into the Star 80s Wars, the, the, the shining the, light. Mm -hmm. so and it's kind of amazing that after all this time that they are housed under the same, this is skipping <laughs> forward, but they're housed under the same umbrella again. Odd. 
yeah. how that happens. But maybe Walt Disney's going to kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to run everything. But then, of course, the movie comes out in 77. Like I said, the original novel and the comic books came out before the movie. And then the movie explodes. There is another book that comes out before the second movie. And this is the book that I read this week. And it's called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Okay. Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Does that sound like any Star Wars title you've ever <laughs> it sounds, I, yeah. I have heard about this book since I was a child. I don't think I've ever actually met anybody that has read it until right now today. Hello. Thank <laughs> Hello. you, Taylor. Shake hands. <laughs> uh, what I have heard about this book sounds so bananas in comparison to the Star Wars that we all know and love, the, the trajectory of that story. This is the number one other than maybe the Christmas special, mm -hmm. disregarded piece of property in this franchise that they would like to forget about and erase off of the face <laughs> of the planet. Yeah, so this came out in 78, before the second movie had come out, quickly after the success of the first movie. It is titled Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster, based on the characters and situations created by George Lucas. This is his fourth book ever written, this hmm. guy. Somebody had seen his random sci-fi book, Ice Trigger, which was his third book ever written, and was like, hey, we want to get him in to do this. Hmm. This was essentially a huge gamble because they didn't know if the movie was going to do well, right. the first one. So they quickly shuffled him in to make the book as a test run for a terrible sequel second movie. Because <laughs> if we don't remember, like in coming into the 80s, sequels were not what they are now, which At is all. like Transformers 2 makes a billion dollars. Who thought that it would? It's like they're not the cash grab. They're how so at the very yeah. same time, Halloween, one of the most profitable independent films of all time, comes out in 1978. It has a sequel come out in 1981 mm -hmm. or 1980, almost right there against Empire Strikes Back. That is kind of the beginning of the of the of the sequel, uh, yeah. That, that really spurs through the '80s and into the '90s. The the idea of the sequel was really not a solidified idea that it is now. It had never been done. If there was a sequel, that you you would wait a decade or more. Uh, the film industry is starting to capitalize on their existing property for the very first time in a short amount of time. It usually would, if they ever did it, would take years. Yeah. So George Lucas commissioned this guy, Alan Dean Foster. He's like, hey, write this book. We'll base the script off of it. If this our first movie doesn't well, we're not going to have the budget to do anything. So mm -hmm. make this book as filmable as possible, and then we will make that the second movie. The whole book is set on a fog-shrouded planet because it would be cheaper backgrounds for <laughs> filming. There is no More Han smoke! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, can't say you can hide it behind a film set. There is no Han Solo. There's also no Chewbacca oh. because they didn't know if they'd have Harrison Ford for the contract for the second movie. So oh. they're like, well, you can't put him in the book, Alan. Oh, there's also no Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher's likeness. The cover of the book is them facing away and Darth Vader facing towards because they didn't know nice. <laughs> if they were going to be signed on either. Or not, not that they weren't going to be signed on, but that they couldn't use their likeness for the property. But it makes the cover look a lot more dramatic. George Lucas, after he had written the book, said, you need to take out the first chapter because there's this dogfighting sequence in space with spaceships. Mm -hmm. And he's like, uh -oh. it, would, it works totally fine in a book. But he was like, if this then is going to be what the movie becomes, we can't have this. It's too expensive. Take it out. Did you see the movie? We can't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, this is why you said before why this thing has been black sheeped and perpetually nobody cares about or knows is because the first movie did 
the second best of any movie ever <laughs> in the history of the world adjusting for inflation. And so they're like, well, we don't have to do that. We can go and do this epic, crazy second movie. Uh, this Allen guy said he left the meeting with George and the and as they're, you know, the first movie isn't even done yet. And they're commissioning him to work on the second book to become the movie. And they said, oh, do you want any of these promotional materials? We've got some stuff. He said he took one T-shirt that says The Star Wars, and it's got renderings of the characters because they hadn't even cast the film yet. Oh. He's like, that T-shirt is worth more than my house right now. Oh, my god! Because he was like, ah, I don't want any of that. So, you know, he was like offering him oh. chintzy oh. film merchandise, and he just took a silly T-shirt. That, sh- yeah, now I wonder what that looks like. Is there, I wonder if there are any photographs of that. Like, what is that? What do these characters look like? Not the likenesses that right. we know that yeah. was actually committed to a t shirt. And that's, that's interesting to me. Yeah. How odd. <laughs> Even more odd. We're going to backpedal just for a second because I told you that first book, Star Wars, The Adventures of Luke Skywalker, that had George Lucas's name on the title. Yeah. This is actually written also by Alan Dean Foster. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and I thought this was funny because I had to dig through some interviews to find this. Evan will appreciate this. Our audience will appreciate it because of the connections. Uh, he said, yeah, nobody knew about this, but it was revealed in this uh, thing called Skywalking the Life and Times of George Lucas by this guy, Dale Pollock, mm-hmm. who is somebody that was one of our teachers in school. He was my mentor in school. I know him well. <laughs> and he is the person who then spilled the beans on the fact that George Lucas didn't write the first book. Ah, <laughs> That's probably why he's so mad at him. <laughs> you told people. You told people. It wasn't real. <laughs> and it was ghostwritten. Actually, both of the books were ghostwritten by this guy. Of course, George Lucas wrote the script and all that. But the, the, the thing that came out before oh the movie my gosh, was Dale. not him. <laughs> so the splinter of the mind's eye, I read the book, is not very good. It feels nowadays like fan fiction of people that sort of like Star Wars. Because, of course, Weird. they didn't know what it was going to be. Right. Or what the characters were or who was even going to act in it or how – like. Luke. What a pure vision almost. Like, yeah. you know, it's like you, they're not muddied by anything other than that they only have the first movie and George Lucas is just like, it's fine. Just no, 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 go small, go small. Uh, and, yeah, they're just you know, muddied by just financial. Seen what they've seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like it's the most pure of it because like right now and all the stuff that we're in, it's so it, it's so many references and callbacks needlessly trying to, you know, you know, reuse what we've seen <laughs> or trying to find new variations of it. It's like, wow, this is like this is just a totally pure point of view on a different idea of what could happen in this world that Mm -hmm. uh, as we go on and continue to try to replicate a feeling or a a moment or a memory in this series this it's odd that this feels like fan fiction when honestly it's like well i mean it It is there before most of it (laughs) yeah and that's what's so wild especially because they end up using a lot of elements that are not quite made sense in here or they completely change them for example Luke, because they didn't know whether they were going to have the Han Solo character, kind of takes that role and is much more the brash, roguish, daredevil character mm. as opposed to the pensive, confused farm boy that he ends up being. So it's interesting that he, that he, in the absence of Han Solo, he start he fills that that mm-hmm. role. So you have Obi Wan gone too, and you have Hobi, you have uh, Han, Han gone too. That it seems like the the, the relationships he's building the, as he loses these people, you could see a character molding himself after the ones that he comes around. Around, which is not really the way they go at all. But <laughs> through that, that's yeah. that's an interesting way to go about it. Is like that's an interesting way to keep Han there in a weird kind of well, what mystical makes it, way. Yeah, what like, makes look it, at him and how he grows. Look at mm-hmm. it, look at look at how he matures. 
What makes it weirder, though, is and proof that they didn't know, or at least George <laughs> Lucas wasn't telling anybody, is because everybody talks about the strange incest in the thing where Luke doesn't know that Leia is his sister. If he is taking on the Han character, he is also taking on right. the romance with Leia. And so, like, in the second chapter, they crash land on this planet, and they're trying to figure something out. They go to sleep, and it says, moistly parted in sleep, her lips seem to beckon to him. Oh, God. Almost like this erotic... Oh, story. It's like you definitely would not have put such overt yeah. sexual attraction throughout this second on. book if you knew it was going to become that. Basically, the whole plot of the thing is there's this old lady on this planet that they crash land on who has the kyber crystal, which helps increase your force powers. And if they help her find it, she'll help them get off the planet. They fight a bunch, get to the crystal. Vader shows up. They fight him. They cut his arm off. He falls into a pit. Luke heals Leia with the crystal with his force powers, and then the old lady takes him off, and that's it. It's it's not really that interesting hmm. or that difficult to understand. Right, plot-wise. it sounds kind of cut and dry, just the inventor type, yeah, stuff. It, honestly, because because what I watched this week, I watched, I caught up on Mandalorian, mm-hmm. and the style, the structure of that sounds almost more like a Mandalorian episode. Of yeah, the, very of there is an objective. Uh, there is a team. There are there, you know, it, and by the end of it, it's all cut and dry, but very action adventure thing, like a very much out on your own in the wilderness, almost western type feel. Is yeah. almost what that feels like, and that's where Mandalorian ends up resting a little bit. They definitely, obviously, because of the financial thing, made it a much smaller, yeah. almost like like yeah. you said, like TV episode story. But uh, one of the things that they did add, which happens in a more recent movie through Disney, is the movie Solo. Uh, where they track Han hmm. Solo's origins. The start of that movie, he is stuck on Mimban, which is this fog-shrouded planet. It's the same planet. That's where he meets Chewbacca. Oh, very cool. So oh. they make an allusion oh. to this story in that movie as oh, well. Oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah. I like that. And this Alan Dean Foster is very underappreciated in the fact that he did write the novelization that came out months and months and months before. And a lot of his ideas and lore and things and the way that people interact and characters and planets and stuff ends up being in that book and in this book, then permutated and changed and warped around into the rest of the Star Wars universe. How interesting. So George Lucas has the idea for the first one goes, you know, and the first one changes and changes and changes and changes and changes. Yeah, and, changes. Yeah. and then he finally ends up in kind of in the form that we're in. And then he hires this guy. All right. Uh, novelized it they're finishing it take a stab at the sequel it's like he got him to do his first draft for him <laughs> basically it's so ridiculous that is yeah. so, he's like he's off making the movie he's like okay well we'll see what happens they think it's a disaster but who knows you know <laughs> what would it look like if we went small but we went adva- uh, go go do that go do that you wrote the first book yeah. and nobody knew about it why don't you write the second one and then he brings it back he's like oh huh, interesting okay <laughs> and then yeah, we'll keep that put that in the pocket oh we for made later. billions oh, of interesting. dollars yeah. took all of that out well it showed and, and it's it highlighted on where maybe not to go mm-hmm. um i mean just having a first draft that's just wildly different sometimes it just highlights all yeah. where you don't darth need vader, to go darth vader gets destroyed at the end of this book <laughs> they chop his arm off and he falls down a pit because they were thinking oh this is going to be the cheap garbage sequel this is i guess where it ends yeah <laughs> we got to figure out how to get rid of the hero you know he's got to become luke has to become the hero in this movie because there is nothing else so thankfully this alan dean foster guy did not just fade into obscurity He has continued to do novelizations. He worked on a novelization called The Approaching Storm, which takes place between episodes one and two. Mm. He also did the novelizations of the new Star Trek movies, 
the 2009 one and then into Blasphemy. Darkness. Blasphemy, he can't switch. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> and then he did the novelization of Force Awakens, which I thought was interesting. Whoa, which is like the, the revitalization. He has over 80 original novels that he's done, so he's just kept working. He did all the novelizations for the Alien movies. Oh, wow. He did it for Transformers. He did it for The Thing. He did it for Chronicles wow. of Riddick. This is like his jam he loves now. It. He loves it. Is doing that. <laughs> He's also been to over 96 countries. I went on his personal website oh, wow. and he just loves traveling and going all over the place and seeing different people and different cultures, which That's probably awesome. helps with his writing. But Absolutely. a fascinating dude. That'd be invaluable. I'm yeah. Sure that's what he's drawing, you know. He's kept on. At this point in history, now that this has come out, this very same year, which Evan alluded to earlier on, comes the holiday special, which was this made-for-TV thing, notorious for being horrendous, and it's extremely negative reception. It has never been rebroadcast or officially released, so it's all bootleg copies of if you saw it live and recorded it. You That's can find exists. it. It's on YouTube. I'll post a link uh, in the show notes. I it, did watch, uh, I think, most of it. It's like taking acid. <laughs> Don't watch it. <laughs> uh, it's bizarre. It centers mostly around the Wookiees and Chewbacca yeah. and his family, but it feels like a terrible public access TV channel hodgepodge of live stand-up comedy and sketches and animation and just a whole slew of weirdness. So this is what happens when you throw 10 executives in a room in the wake of a massive success, all of which had no- who had nothing to do with that success who all want a piece of that success and are willing to overthrow any piece or portion of it that they can find power in. I mean, I feel horrible watching <laughs> Mark Hamill and and uh, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. She she has a great song at the end of it and everything. You know, she's like, yeah, there's musical She's doing the too. best yeah. out of any of them. Is like really trying. She's like the heart of it all. And she's like, you, can, you know, like she's really trying. I just feel horrible for those guys knowing that they're attached to this. They don't really have a choice. You know, it's like they are the characters by this point and, and they're just being dragged through the mud by people who are looking for any power anywhere they can find it. And mm-hmm. it's pretty gross. <laughs> the good thing, the not sad thing, as it's all being cobbled together, there is a cartoon portion of this that is particularly notable that they outsource. Oh, yeah, to some animation studio. <laughs> this is, speaking to The Mandalorian, the first mentioning of Boba Fett comes from this bizarre cartoon in the holiday Boba special. Boba Fett, Taylor. Boba Fett. I'd be remiss if I if I didn't. I know. I know. I got him, everyone. I got Boba him. Boba Fett. <laughs> this is the first mentioning of him in this bizarre cartoon from the holiday special. It's pretty cool. It's, obvious, it's, it's by far and away the best part of it. They came up with him. They make reference to this in the, in the Mandalorian in the fact that this whole holiday special centers around Chewbacca celebrating Life Day. And that is mentioned in episode one of The Mandalorian. So they bring Life it, they always bringing it back around. <laughs> they won't, they, at this point, we're not going to let it die, which, and we shouldn't let them forget. Yeah. Because they still do that stuff. It's not like that, like we all learned in the corporations got bitch. No, they still do exactly the same thing. <laughs> Cash in on it. Speaking of cashing in, The Empire Strikes novelization comes out in 1980, around the same time as now the second movie, after all of the confusion of who knows what this property is going to be. Written by Donald Glut, but again, mm. for some reason, notorious for incorrect facts. Vader still has a blue lightsaber. Yoda has blue skin instead of green. Weird. Han Solo is more mean and way less flirty than he should be. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately after, or close after, eighty-seven to ninety-one is what we call the dark times mm. of the Star Wars literary saga. Not much publication at all. Everybody really? thinks 
This is when it's, it's over. Going the property's the dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they made the they made four, five, six. It ended. It ended. Here we go. The Jedi returned. 1991, <laughs> Timothy Zahn writes this book, Heir to the Empire, hmm? and it revitalizes George Lucas. He decides after this really? point. Really? He's like, I want to make one, two, three again. Yeah. This Whoa, is also- What is this book? I want to know more about this book. What's in this book? The general premise of it, which is interesting that they didn't take this for what they're doing now, because it's set five years after Return of the Jedi, the Rebel Alliance is the New Republic- and they're trying to set up a government. Leia and Solo are married and expecting twins. Mm. And then those characters become the, new... the central figures. Luke Skywalker so has, is natural. the first in a new line of Jedi Knights. And then there's this new guy, Grand Admiral Thrawn, who is the last of the 12 Grand Admirals of the Empire who resurges. And he becomes like the Darth Vader, Palpatine, okay. like all that stuff. Gotcha. Um, and then there was a whole trilogy. It hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers really? when it came out. Yeah, it completely revitalized out, it. So out of nowhere, this guy just has a new concept, a new mm -hmm. idea of where, where the story can go, and it just explodes. Yeah. I was interested because, like I said, it came out on the bestsellers. Like, The Firm by John Grisham came out around the same time. <laughs> and this is beating that out Wow, week to week. This guy also came up with the idea of Coruscant, the capital city that the Jedi Knights are in. And then, of course, Lucas used this in 1999 in yeah. the prequels as a central part of what the Republic was. Man, Lucas just getting people to do drafts <laughs> for him, baby. Ooh, good idea. Thank you. I'll take that. I'll take that. So more books, more which things is so are interesting. Yeah. By the time, and I mean, this is kind of breaking, but when by the time we do get to the prequels, and everybody's that works on those films are too afraid to question him, when if anybody was actually around him through the whole process, they'd see that he's picking and choosing and mashing together, which mm -hmm. I think is why the things are good because he's just yeah. using his best taste and he's got a lot of ideas coming in, and and that dynamic goes away by the time we get to the prequels. Yeah, and I think that's kind of why those and everything since come less to kind of uh, a different uh, flavor tile quality yeah. yeah we've covered just now how two authors have really injected a lot into mm -hmm. this franchise and things that we still use today big parts of it that yeah. don't come from lucas at all then people have probably have never even heard these guys names heart that haven't read these books mm -hmm. so it's just so interesting how he got into a position by the time he's making the prequels that nobody Everybody thinks everything he says is golden and nobody's questioning him. Yeah. And I think that really puts it at a disadvantage and it's really sad. I think this this franchise is at its best when there's so many hands on there's, it. There's a lot of hands on it and you have somebody with good taste just trying to take all the best things and put them together. Mm -hmm. As of 2004, there were over 1,100 Star Wars titles, including novels, comic books, nonfiction, and magazines. So many. In 2000, there was a specific person hired by Lucas Licensing, Leland Chi was hired as Continuity Database Administrator. So they name it after a thing in Star Wars called the Holocron, but it actually exists <laughs> in the real world. And it's 55,000 different entries for characters, locations, species, vehicles. Although based on what you said, I think it's interesting because I found in an interview in August of 2005, now this is into the prequels, mm -hmm. Lucas said- This is the of, end of the prequels. He's, yeah, uh, three is yeah. coming out. Lucas said this of the expanded universe. I don't read that stuff. I haven't read any of the novels. I don't know anything else about that world. That's a different world than my world, but I do try to keep it consistent. A liar. <laughs> <laughs> you hired the guys, and we know you, you use the ideas. We know you read those books. Or somebody told him about them. He said, the way I do it now is they have a Star Wars encyclopedia, which he's referring to as the Holocron. Of I mean, well, I'm sure by now, but I'm, you, I'm talking about in 1980. 
Right. Well, it's interesting. He's he's, reading what these guys are putting out and he's going, ooh, good idea or not quite off the mark. But I'm just saying back while he's making those first three movies, I think he's taking in everything. Mm-hmm. Past that and into when he's made into the 90s when he starts to make the prequels, I think what he says there in that interview is absolutely true. He doesn't read any of it. He's got enough going forth. But when he's really trying to figure out what this is, which they were actively doing through the first movie and into the fir- into the second one about what this was. This was not all predetermined. They did not have it all planned out. And by what we've covered here, we know that he was picking and choosing by some of this material. Yeah. And the people that he were picking and choosing were also getting it violently wrong. Yoda isn't blue. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's all a mess. Uh, Lucas was just as easily inspired by other things outside yeah. of his own mind or the, then what he created and his cohorts around him. A big one, which then also became a movie that nobody cared about because it was so early on, mm-hmm. was A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which came out in 1917. That's when the book came out. They, Disney turned it into the movie John Carter, which is oh. about that guy from the Civil War yeah. that then, I don't know if he time travels or space travels, and there's those four-armed aliens and all that stuff. Right. I did not do well it, because it didn't have a it didn't have a major star as a vehicle, but also that was like the original sci-fi thing. It's the guy that wrote Tarzan. Oh man! And so to then make it in modern times, people are like, "Oh, you're you're this is like a shade of Star Wars and Star Trek." It's like, no, no, no. This is what <laughs> no, those are based it. off of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other things Lucas is credited as saying inspired him is this book Armageddon twenty four nineteen by Philip Francis Nolan, which is what has Buck Rogers. Oh. As the space traveler. Also, Flash Gordon, the comic yeah. book series from the 30s. Yeah. He's also said he was inspired by 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. which came out in 68. Lucas allegedly initially pitched Star Wars as a combination of 2001 and James Bond. So he used it in his example to try and have people understand right. the craziness that he was expecting. And then, of course, his own thing, THX 1138, which is this art house dystopian future. It's movie. pretty cool, I have to say. He did, and he had a short film first that he did mm-hmm. in school, and then he, I think he made it into a, a, a full indie feature. They're yeah. Pretty, they're pretty well done. The production design is pretty cool. I mean, they don't have any money, but it's they do well for what they have. It's and really he, nice. yeah. Allegedly, he had gotten a lot of guff for that because it wasn't relatable to an audience, and it is really esoteric and weird. Yeah. And it's interesting that he was like, fine, you want something that everybody can relate to? He made American Graffiti, mm-hmm. which is a very Kids relatable. Cruising, yeah. Exploded, and now those are the movies. Harrison Ford. This is how he met Harrison Ford. Mm -hmm. These are the movies that he ends up making. Then he makes Star Wars, and it's like, oh, we're off to the races of what he is about. Mm -hmm. But imagine if he had stayed jaded and wanted to do experimental art house movies, we never would have had Star Wars and everything that combines with it. Which Um, is where he says he is, where where he ends up creatively now, is that he is making a bunch of stuff that mm -hmm. he doesn't care to share. That he's just like experimenting and playing. Yeah, um, and he's gone back to just doing all the stuff that he feels like honestly he should have been doing this entire time. Yeah, which is really interesting. And it's interesting that somebody that had that much foray of just trying to experiment with the avant garde ends up making the most, uh, the biggest franchise on the face of the planet, and follows that for a good portion of his life. It went away through the back half of the '80s and into the '90s, but it came back right in the mid '90s. He's, with Timothy's you know, on, you know it. <laughs> And he's kind of been shackled to it this whole time. And that's kind of a, a, I watched a documentary that also has our good friend Dale in it um, called The People versus George Lucas, which I highly recommend. You can probably find that uh, really easily streaming. It's just about the idea of the fans and how they have aligned and turned and aligned against and with 
uh, mm-hmm. George Lucas throughout this entire thing. And you get a perspective on George Lucas that feels it's like, oh, man, he could have done so much other stuff. Jim Carrey has a great line is that you can fail at what you don't want. He succeeded at what he didn't mm-hmm. want. And, and, and there's no escape. And, and it's really interesting when somebody is trying to do their best and the people that they have endeared themselves to turn. And people what, wonder, what, like, why did he precedent? why did he sell it to Disney? It's like, well, well I mean, he's tired. Who of else it. is going to buy it? <laughs> yeah. He's so old. He was never going to make another one after after the backlash, which now is so interesting that people want to hold up. The or they prequels. like it. They or... like the prequels now. That seems to be the tide turning on <laughs> it. But, you know, 10 years ago, people were trashing him. And the idea was, whoa, you're never getting a Star Wars ever, ever again because of the way you treated this man after he gave you more what you asked for. It wasn't yeah. it didn't taste like what you wanted. That was where the franchise lay around 2010 was mm-hmm. you're never getting another ounce of it. They come, we get into this. Do we want more of this or do we not want more of this? Yeah. And what does that look like going forward? Who has the means to actually uh, acquire it, which is uh, nobody other than the, than the entity that did acquire it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so just for our listeners, what that looks like going forward, everything literarily otherwise was called the Expanded Universe until 2014 when Disney bought them. And they said everything except for the Core 9 movies and the Clone Wars TV show is considered now under the Legends thing and is totally Mm non-canon. So everything, everything that these millions of people worked on in terms of all the books and TVs, everything is just, you know, that 55,000 thing encyclopedia database of all the characters and things and this and that is not true to the story. That's all what we call Legends and myths and fables from this universe and the movies, the Clone Wars TV show, and what we Getting decided to Getting off on make. a great foot, Disney. Go <laughs> ahead and just show the finger to all everybody who loves and has worked on both, both the people who love it and work on it and try to placate to a non-existent new audience. That's right. what real, and just great game plan, guys. Yeah, well, that's what they're doing. And so unfortunately, I guess if you, I, I the thing is like, I didn't know anything about all the extraneous stories, but there are hundreds of side stories and characters and the Republic commandos during the Clone Wars and Leia's children after. I mean, it's, there's so many things that other people have put together, which Disney has decided is not a part of the core story because it's getting too crazy. I mean, it's like I get, I, at a, at a certain, at a creative standpoint, I kind of get it. I see a two roads there of like, well, you can lean into everything that has been done for you and not have to worry about how things work and just make the best story possible. Or you can start from the ground up and give the finger to everybody who's ever put a finger on it or loved it. Mm -hmm. I just, it's, it's odd. Uh, creatively having a clean slate is interesting, but I kind of like knowing where my boundaries are to a degree of like knowing, Oh, this is the world. This is the rules. This is, you know, over. Yeah. I don't know. It's, and that's hard. I mean, what is the series going to look like in 50 years or a hundred years? I mean, I, I feel confident that star Wars will be around after I'm gone, you know? So what is that going to look like when George Lucas is like dead and gone and somebody has to be the arbiter of this? Well, speaking of the past and the future, and combining them all. There was one thing that was officially endorsed by Star Wars, LucasArts at least, in 2013 before Disney acquired them. And it's called William Shakespeare's Star Wars. So it's all the movies. I highly recommend looking at this. I'll post a link to one <laughs> of them. But it's this guy who took all of the Star Wars scripts and turned them into Shakespearean five-act plays. That's so it's great. like The Phantom of Menace, Tragedy of the Sith's Revenge, Verily a New Hope. <laughs> and he did it even with the new one before, right before it came out, The Force Doth Awaken. <laughs> and it's got all the stage directions, and it's oh, written in cool. iambic pentameter. 
It's got everything. Oh man, that's it's awesome. It's absolutely wonderful. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah. So if you're if you want to get the old ones in a new way, which they were f- fine with playing around with. That's so cool. I love that they out. actually officially adopted it and that somebody really went through and, and did it with that much detail. That's so cool. And it's it's credited with, like, I look at the reviews on Amazon and a lot of English teachers on a school are like, this helps my class get Hamlet or get Othello. Oh, I bet. Oh, because man. It's a that story gives that such they a new know. reference, a new, a new point of view, a new window into into that material. That'd be such a key to unlock. Mm-hmm. Well, you know Star Wars. You know that story. Mm-hmm. This is what it would look like this, if it was done this, this way, mm-hmm. then. That's the kind of stuff that I wanted, you know, <laughs> like f- find a way to reach me. Yeah. Uh, and it's all there. But if you, if you can't spark my, in- you know, like that, I just, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful, fun way to do it. Yeah. And now Disney has come out with the Mandalorian as the most recent foray into the Star Wars universe. Yes. I did see the first episode. Mandalorian is is a term used to identify a bounty hunter character like Boba Fett. Like Boba, there you go, Boba Fett. Um, but they're saying that that Mandalorians aren't all bounty hunters. I'm, I'm unclear as to exactly where the line draws between Mandalorian and, uh, and a bounty hunter and what there are exactly definitely Boba Fett is. And 22 novels that you could read about this. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> oh, well, I got some studying to do. Um, <laughs> um, so this follows uh, one particular Mandalorian character. It stars Pedro Pascal, and you might know him from uh, from a couple indie things. Nick Nolte is one reoccurring big character, uh, Carl Weathers. And relating back to our episode about Jojo Rabbit, the guy that wrote and directed Jojo Rabbit, uh, Taika Waititi, he has a character in Mandalorian that's in episode one and episode seven, and possibly an eight, we don't know, but he also directs the finale, episode eight, that comes out on December wow. 27th, which I didn't know until just before we were about to record. Pretty crazy. The best thing about it, though, for me, it's on a budget, and you can tell, and I think that makes it good, as you can see them having to make choices all the time. This really leans heavily into makeup and practical effects uh, and this might be somewhat of a spoiler, but the the Baby Yoda character, quote quote unquote Baby Yoda, that's a puppet. It's almost all real. Um, that's the thing that, for me, my brother is a, a makeup effects creature guy. I've been into horror my whole life. I just love practical effects, creatures, makeups, that kind of stuff. And I've been a little bit disappointed with the use of that in the Disney stuff thus far, but they really pull it out for this one. Um, has a little bit of a more serious tone that I've enjoyed. Um, very Western, very adventure feel. Um, there's very little humor uh, forced in, which I really enjoy. That's what I've been watching. Yeah. And from my side, it's always based on something, particularly in this case, Evan was talking about very much the Western feel and that idea of a badass with a baby Yeah, <laughs> has been done in a lot of stuff. This actually was a very famous, although they're not going to say that this is loosely what it's based Yeah, they would on. never very say Very similar, though. Based. There's a manga called Lone Wolf and Cub that came out in the 70s mm. originally, and it is about this executioner, a la Bounty Hunter, who is a um, the executioner to the Shogun, and he becomes an assassin after this clan kills his wife, ruining the reputation of his house. The catch, of course, is he has his son with him. This got turned into a movie called Shogun Assassin. Oh. Um, there's also sci-fi versions like Lone Wolf 2100. 
oh, that have been made. So this cool. has a whole thing, as well as, of course, the original Star Wars is inspired by a lot of Akira Kurosawa's yes. samurai-type films, hence Darth Vader's helmet. But I just thought it was interesting that there was a manga. That is ultimately, I think, what the series is about, is why does he decide to care for this child when yeah. it is technically his a job? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that's pretty good. We'll see how it ends, though. Yeah. And Rise of Skywalker is out today. If you're listening to this. If you're listening to this, the Friday it came out. It came out today. So everybody, I'm sure, going to go see it this weekend. Going to have have a good time, hopefully. And we did it. Star Wars. That's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, I didn't know that these, these novelizations and the authors of them had such an impact real i mean they obviously got so much stuff wrong but they also contributed a lot yeah that people just don't know i mean that's what this show is all about send us something on instagram at illiterate pod if you have a cool star wars fact that you want us to know yeah did we get something wrong i'm sure we did <laughs> call us out hit us up at illiterate pod on instagram y'all all right see you next week see you next week